Before we begin our main event, a brief reminder that Historically Thinking is now on Patreon. When you become a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room on Patreon, you not only support the podcast's weekly operations, from web hosting to scheduling to audio editing, you also enable us to do more in the future. Benefits that you'll receive as a Common Room member include a special weekly podcast, podcasts dropped in advance when possible, special events online and in the future live, input on topics, guests, and questions, competitions and prizes, and more. We will continue to produce our regular podcasts, which will still be available for free on Mondays in all your regular podcast feeds. We hope you'll enjoy being part of the Historically Thinking Common Room at Patreon. Just go to Patreon and search for Historically Thinking. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello. On July 2nd, 1822, Denmark Vesey was hung for attempting to lead a slave revolt in Charleston, South Carolina. Also executed that day were five of his supporters. Over the next month, a total of 35 men were hung in public executions for their involvement in Vesey's plot. On one day, 22 were killed in a mass execution. Both Vesey's prosecutors and his allies, writes my guest Jeremy Shepper, appealed to the Bible to decry or justify the insurrection plot. In this way, their behavior mirrored Abraham Lincoln's words decades later in his second inaugural address. Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. Yet while Lincoln seems to have been referring to Northerner and Southerner, in this instance, those words perfectly applied to white and black Southerners to enslavers and enslaved. How they read the same text, how they prayed those texts, is therefore of intense interest to anyone seeking to understand that moment in Charleston, or for that matter, any other moment in the history of slavery and racial conflict in the United States. Jeremy Shipper is professor of religion at Temple University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, author of numerous books. His most recent is Denmark Vesey's Bible, The Thwarted Revolt That Put Slavery and Scripture on Trial, which is the subject of our conversation today. Jeremy Shipper, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you for having me. So um, it's an important book. It's about an extraordinarily important book in, about an extraordinarily important book in American history, which is the Bible uh, and how people uh, interpret the same words and how it forms their thought worlds. It's also about an extraordinarily important moment in American history that very few people, white or black, let's be honest, really know about. So um, I'd first like to know how you became interested in this topic, how you focused on it. I, I, I'm pleased to see that friend of this podcast, Doug Egerton, had a lot to do with this. Yes. Um, actually, so the way that uh, I became interested in this topic was somewhat you know, uh, accidental, um, it was 2015, and my co-author for another book called Black Samson, uh, who actually just met before the uh, podcast started, um, she and I were writing a, a book uh, that traced the story of Black Samson and how he'd been racialized uh, throughout U.S. history. And one of the uh, reviewers of the book, but it was still a manuscript, uh, suggested that uh, we look at if there are any comparisons between Samson and and Denmark Vesey. Mm -hmm. uh, so I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll look this up. I started looking through the trial transcripts and I found next to nothing uh, 
in terms of comparisons between uh, VC and Samson. Mm-hmm. But as I was going through trial transcripts, I became very, very interested and intrigued by the back and forth over biblical interpretation between VC and uh, his oppressors, mm-hmm. uh, the magistrates at the trial specifically. Um, and uh, one line particularly stood out to me, and this was when uh, when VC was being read his sentence, his death sentence, uh, by the magistrate uh, Lionel Kennedy. Um, and Kennedy first, you know, went he went beyond the formal charge of attempting to raise an insurrection, uh, and he and he uh, he said um, he sternly remarked to uh, to VC, in addition to treason, you have committed the grossest impiety in attempting to pervert the sacred words of God into sanctions for crimes of the blackest hue. So that line just you know just stood out to me. You know, it was like, okay, wow, there's something here. You know that you know it wasn't just the insurrection but also his use of scripture. So there's almost, there's almost an, it's very interesting. This is a civil trial. Yes. But, yes. But in a way that's almost sounds like out of early Christian history, it's almost, there's almost a, there's almost a charge of heresy there. Uh, I used oh, to read, absolutely. I, I used to read inquisition transcripts a lot um, yeah. back in a former life. And there's a, re, there's a strange resonance with a, like a Franciscan inquisitor passing a judgment on an accused heretic. Yeah, absolutely. I think I, I think those parallels are uh, are definitely there. Um, so, not to be to be blunt about it, what's your argument? So yeah, so the argument is that you know there've been there've been several important books written about Daniel Vesey in, in, in a trial, um, and you know they're mostly interested in the historical re- reconstruction of the events, which mm-hmm. is very important. And very um, and, and as we'll see, is extraordinarily complex and absolutely, really absolutely. and will always be hard to get our fingers around because it's because it's a conspiracy. So it's absolutely, like yeah. conspiracies are hard to understand. But we'll absolutely, get to that. yeah. Um, and so what what I was interested in is how how uh, both VC and his oppressors um, use the Bible. <clears throat> excuse me. Use the Bible. Um, to either legitimize or call into question uh, the revolt uh, or the, you know, the intended revolt, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, so looking at how the Bible became a main, re- became a main resource uh, to, in a variety of different ways to sort of control the narrative and mm-hmm. dictate VC's legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that became a central, uh, central way of, trying to understand his legacy, you know, whether it's uh, to uh, honor his legacy and, you know, promote his legacy or, you know, tarnish his legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, or to, and- we, can e- we can even go deeper than that, or to, to, it's a battle for the intellectual life of the South. Yes, 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 yes. You know, and, and absolutely. And those implications, you know, uh, will, you know, this is, this is 40 years before the Civil War, roughly. Uh, and some of the texts that VC used uh, were, you know, even even if he wasn't the first person to use those texts, uh, became amplified, uh, especially in the 1850s and 18 and 1860s. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, so you know, I, I think that that that's definitely an accurate way of putting it. It it always has struck me. Well, I, I mean, I was inescapably also thinking as I read the book of um, Alexander Stevens' famous, infamous Cornerstone speech of 1861 in Savannah, and there's a line that 
always strikes me and has always struck students um, how basically, well, Stephen says, you know, some of us who are old enough will realize when we thought slavery was wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, yeah. Were so, we realized that was an antiquated view. Yeah. And now the modern view is to realize basically racial difference. Yeah. Um, and Mr. Mr. Jefferson, when he wrote those words in the Declaration, was wrong. Mr. Jefferson was wrong. And I've often thought that basically the, the inflection points of moving towards Stephen's sort of progress, he, he's, he's talking about, Stevens believes he is a progressive. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he yeah. has, he's, he's kept up with the march of science. Um, and I think that in so many ways, what it, you see at Gabriel's Rebellion in 1800 in Virginia, you see this again with Nat Turner's Rebellion in 1831, we've talked about it on the podcast, but also then Denmark Vesey's Rebellion, you see these inflection points where people change their view on slavery. We're going to get to Furman, Richard Furman, it's an immensely important figure, but yeah. people are fighting over the, through the biblical text they're fighting over what is the nature of slavery and of a slave society. Yes. And, That's like, and you do, uh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, you know, and we, we could also talk about some, you know, there are a few parallels between Gabriel, uh, Gabriel's uh, um, conspiracy and VC's conspiracy. Uh, in fact, there, uh, there's an interesting, um, interesting connection in that, you know, that at least according to one witness or one betrayer, in Gabriel's trial, um, that the Gabriel's brother Martin uh, appealed to a text uh, from Leviticus twenty-six to show that the uh, that despite the overwhelming numbers that they faced, uh, they would have uh, divine support. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you do have you know you do have appeals to biblical texts uh, even even as far back as Gabriel, and of course as you mentioned, you know, Nat Turner in eighteen in eighteen thirty-one. Uh, you know, they're, they're, you know, the confession is saturated with saturated. Yeah, text. and we've talked about it in the previous podcast, um, and we'll link to, we'll link to that in the show notes uh, about the many much of the biblical imagery in, in Nat Turner's uh, case. But let's talk. Uh, we're going to spend some uh, amount of time explaining uh, who Denmark Vesey was and the nature of the conspiracy. I know this is this is as you make clear in the book. This is outside your wheelhouse, but given yeah. the uh, a lamentable ignorance that most of us have about sort of the importance of these events, we're going to have to explain them. So first of all, Denmark Vesey, who is he? How does he get such a name? And and yeah. and, and prior to that moment of his arrest, who is he in Charleston? Yeah, so um so in terms of what we know about uh Vesey's uh, early life, and when I say early life, I mean he was he was uh, roughly fifty five, give or take, uh, when the revolt happened. So when I say early life, I mean like the first so you know, fifty four years basically. Um, he was thought to be born in about eight about seventeen sixty seven. Uh, exactly where is a, is a subject for debate, either the uh, west coast of Africa or somewhere in the Caribbean. Um, he was. Um, Sold in the Caribbean uh, by a uh, um, a captain of a uh, of a ship that tra- of a ship that transported enslaved people uh, named Joseph Vesey, uh, and he was originally sold in the Caribbean, uh, but then uh, he was returned to Joseph Vesey uh, because the planter who bought him complained that uh, Vesey, that a Denmark um, was uh, suffered from epileptic fits. Although there's no evidence of that later on in his life. Uh, so Joseph Vesey then took him to Charleston. Uh, 
and um, this was about eighteen, the early uh, the early seventeen eighties, uh, and he was enslaved in Charleston up until seventeen ninety nine. Uh, Joseph Vesey gave him the name uh, Telemac. Um, there's no evidence of his uh, of his birth name. Uh, gave him the name Telemac. Uh, the uh, the the black community in Charleston uh, eventually, you know, sort of tra- 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 call him Denmark uh, rather than Telemac. So it actually has nothing to do with the nation of Denmark, uh, but rather it's just this uh, this uh, switch from uh, the pronunciation of Telemac to Denmark. Um, in 1799, extraordinarily, Denmark VC won the lottery, uh, won fifteen hundred dollars in a local lottery, the East Bay Lottery. Uh, he he used six hundred those dollars to buy his freedom, uh, and then the remaining um, nine hundred dollars, you know, he set up a, a thriving carpentry business. Um, so from basically eighteen hundred to eighteen twenty two, he lived as a free man, uh, and had a rather thriving carpentry business. Had a family, was married three times, uh, had you know, several children. Um, and and we he, know, he's doing he's doing this. So he comes of age. I'm just gonna, yeah. He is sold into slavery. He yes. comes of age. He gets his freedom against a backdrop of revolutions sweeping across the Atlantic world, and especially yes. across around the Caribbean littoral. And yes. Charleston is in many ways, especially at that point, is the northernmost city on the Caribbean littoral. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's an easy sail to the Bahamas. It's um, it's that, and it, it's connected to all those places. It receives lots of refugees from the Haitian slave revolts. Yeah, um, and he's growing up. He's coming of age in the midst of that, and he's coming up even in South Carolina. He's coming of age, and he gets his freedom at a time where slavery is, you know. Uh, we can argue about this, but even in the Constitutional Convention, even the South Carolina delegates don't necessarily want to say that slavery is a positive good. Yeah, yeah. It's often talked about as a necessary evil. A necessary evil. They haven't gotten to the positive good philosophy yet. And, yeah. you know, it won't be possible for someone to win the lottery and get their freedom 20 years later, partly because of him. But yeah. but, but but this is the moment. This is still, there's still some fluidity in the in the yeah. question, even in the heartbed of the the Carolina, the heart of the Carolina Low Country, absolutely. And, and, and to your point, you know, uh, one idea with that the the thinking behind the revolt was that once it took place, uh, after uh, the uh, white population of Charleston was slaughtered, they would sell back to Haiti. Uh, yeah. So, you know, to your point, you know, you know, with the Haitian Revolution going on right when he right when he gained his freedom, right when he bought his freedom, uh, you know, the, the, the Haiti loomed large. Uh, in his his thinking, as well as the fears of the white population in Charleston, mm-hmm. uh, as yes. well, um, absolutely. And, so, you know, and, and just uh, with the sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was just say with the um, in terms of the wider context, the original date that he planned the revolt for was Bastille Day. Uh, so that's not coincidental. Uh, there, he spoke French as well, uh, so that you know, so these larger sort of global forces. Uh, global, so what's happening around the globe, you know, was definitely influential in his uh, in his thinking. So, what do we know? I mean, he has a he by all accounts, as you say, he has a thriving carpentry business. Yeah, he enjoys uh, liberty, which is um, 
he enjoys as much liberty and social prominence as any free black man in the deep South can have at the time or anywhere in the South. Yeah. Um, and probably in some ways, even in the North at the time, yeah, because probably, he, because yeah. he, because he is, there's many ways it indicates that he is a, he's a sort of pillar of the community. I mean, he's called yeah. upon by whites to support their initiatives, you know, uh, this, that, and the other. At what point do we think that he began to get the idea for a revolt? Yeah, so that you know, so so to your point, you know, even the magistrate when you know uh, when sentencing investigated was rather dumbstruck, you know, saying like, "Hey, you know, you had it relatively good." Uh, to paraphrase, you know, uh, why, why this happened, you know, and so um, so the question of motivation and when exactly he uh, came up with the idea for the revolt is is a great question. There there are a couple of different factors that may have contributed to it. You know, it's probably not just one factor, but a couple of different uh, factors. Uh, you know, um, some have speculated that it was, you know, his age, um, you know, he was, you know, in his you know, early 50s, so sort of now or never kind of thing. Uh, other folks have, you know, have uh, talked about his, uh, um, several members of his family were still enslaved. Uh, and despite his, you know, economic resources, he couldn't uh, free them. <laughs> uh, so some folks have, you know, have, have factored that into, uh, um, into account. Other folks have also mentioned the uh, Missouri Compromise. Um, he was very aware of, you know, of Rufus King, the nor- the Northern Senator who was very, um, was very anti-slavery. Uh, and, you know, uh, VC mentioned his speeches. Uh, so some have, you know, some have speculated that that, you know, the, the Missouri compromise, uh, was, you know, a deflection point, uh, for, for VC. Um, other folks have also, you know, other folks have also mentioned the, the establishment of the African church, which mm-hmm. was a forerunner for uh, the AME uh, church mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and uh, Emmanuel AME, which is a, you know, which is a thriving congregation to this day. Also the, um, the incident where in 2015 uh, where Reverend Pickney and, uh, and, and, and others were uh, assassinated and gunned down. Um, but, you know, uh, you know, so, you know, the, the, the establishment of the church um, in 1818, uh, possibly the Missouri Compromise, uh, possibly just his uh, his family life. You know, all those factors could have contributed to why at this point. I'm uh, a fan of all of the above myself. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Me too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't come down on you know this was the one reason, but you know all these factors probably contributed to why you know why he sort of waited so long, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Why in 1822? So, um, how did he go about? developing support for this for the for his for the conspiracy for the revolt and uh how did how did he start to use scripture in in sort of reasoning with the people that he was persuading yeah so one of the main reasons and probably not the only reason but you know one of the main i was just saying one of the main methods uh was he was what's called a class leader um in uh the uh, african church um and what that entailed was you no know, uh meetings Usually at night, uh, where uh, they ostensibly discuss scripture, um, and he was one of these class leaders. Uh, he could read also, uh, and it's not sure that all the people in convers- who he's in conversation with could uh, could read, or at least had varying degrees of literacy. Um, so you know, he uh, the one of the main one of the main methods for to, uh, for garnering support was within the African church. Um, which the white authorities became highly suspicious of. Um, 
but he um he seemed to be, that that seemed to be one of the main uh, places that he did that, and, and that would also be the, one of the main places that he expounded on scripture, and you know, and brought up uh, scripture quite a bit. We should we should explain how very briefly because man, I could I could we could probably spend another hour talking about this. How did um when we say church church, of course, there are a variety of churches, yeah. and churches work differently at different times in the 30 years. So for example, and I remember being so dumbstruck to realize that in the 1780s, probably the Dover Baptist, whatever it was, Dover Baptist convention in, which is based in Williamsburg, probably yeah. had hundreds of members, probably the largest Baptist meeting in, in, in the United States, if not the world. And it was being pastored by uh, a, a formerly enslaved black man. And there yeah. might, and there might have been in the 1780s, and this is a subject for debate, um, when Gowan pamphlet was the pastor of Dover Baptist, there might've been white people in there too. There, yeah. So there's this brief moment of interracial churches, both Baptist and Methodist. That's not the case. Well, so that was, might've been the part of VC's earlier life in churches too. Yeah. I would probably, you know, I would probably, I mean, I think, I think the, the Dover Baptist church, if we were talking about Gabriel, uh, I would definitely say that that was a, that was a big influence in Virginia for, for Gabriel. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, especially with, you know, with Gabriel's revolt in, in 1800. Um, yeah, I would definitely say that's probably the part of the background, uh, for, uh, for Gabriel. Um, VC was especially influenced by, you know, also in, you know, in the late 17, in the late 1700s by, um, the, uh, the establishment of the AME church with Richard the, Allen. Richard Allen, the, Afri- the African and Methodist Episcopal church. Uh, yes, exactly. Sort of broken and, away because of racial prejudice in the Methodist congregation in in Philadelphia, forming a separate congregation. Allen himself, formerly enslaved in Delaware, and then turning it into a massive institution, African American institution, which spreads along the Eastern Seaboard. Exactly, and in fact, in uh, eighteen sixteen, Morris Brown uh, went up to Philadelphia, met with Allen, and you know, and then came back to Charleston. And you know, established the African Church, um, so you know th- there was a very direct tie uh, between that. And in fact, you know, um, several of the uh, pro-slavery folks after the conspiracy was discovered, uh, you know, complained about agitators from Philadelphia, um, which seems to be a reference to uh, to uh, Richard Allen. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there is a direct tie. In fact, the um, the first AME Church established in the South was. Uh, what became Mother Manuel, Mother Manuel um, yeah. in uh, in Charleston? So, uh, so yeah, there's a very direct tie there. So he's a class leader in the AME Church by this time. Yeah, and what what will become the AME Church? Yeah, yeah. sort of a forerunner for the and, AME. And church. is and by this time, um, Methodists and Baptists have retreated from their well, some for some anti-slavery positions, and yeah. others certainly, um, let's say, slavery hostile. Uh, that was yeah. se- slavery hostile seems to have been the mean in in both Baptist and Methodist, but now they've retreated, and we'll see that in many ways they're pushed over into a pro-slavery position by 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 Gabriel's rebellion. Yeah, and in fact, you know, some you know, um, even before uh, the the, the uh, revolt came to light or the conspiracy came to light, um, you do have some uh, white Methodist ministers in Charleston complaining. That you know a large part of their congregation, which was in fact um, uh, made up of, uh, of of black Charlestonians, mm-hmm. had left and joined uh, the 
the uh, the African church, you know. So even within, you know, as you mentioned, this retreat uh, within white Methodist churches, but also then sort of complaining about, you know, that a large part of the congregation, specifically the black congregation, was uh, was moving uh, towards the African African church. So the Gabriel's reasoning with the enslaved. Easy. And if, uh, uh, sorry, Gabriel. Yeah, then Mark Vesey's reasoning with the other, in, with enslaved and other free blacks, is occurring within this. Let's call it liturgical context. It, it's yeah, occurring yeah. within a sort of a, a certain sacred space of the class meeting. Yeah. So let's go through how he does this in a way okay. as, as best as can be teased out. And, and let's start with Exodus twenty-one sixteen. Exodus twenty-one sixteen. Yeah. Um, yeah. And th- what is Exodus twenty-one sixteen? And how do you think Gabriel used it uh, to reason with with the people around him? Yeah, so Exodus twenty one sixteen um, that comes up several times. Several uh, enslaved uh, um, witnesses at the trials uh, mentioned uh, Exodus uh, twenty one sixteen. Uh, I should mention also that all of uh, the folks involved in this incident, you know, uh, white uh, and black, use the King James version. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, you know, it's a little more complicated than that, uh, but in terms of the texts that are recorded, they're all, they're all from the King James Version. So I'll actually just read uh, Exodus 21 16 from the King James Version uh, just to um, give you a little bit of a flavor for uh, what, uh, what VC was used as one of his central texts. Uh, so this is Exodus 21 16. He that stealeth a man and selleth him, or if he be found in his hand, he shall surely be put to death. So, you know, VC could read that as a, as a fairly straightforward divine command. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, hey, if you, if you steal someone, if you kidnap someone, if you sell them, or if they're found in your hand, in other words, you, know, you acquire them, you know, through, through a sale uh, or by other means, you shall surely be put to death. Um so you know, reading that text, yeah. What's um the? I, I immediately think that there's. I start to immediately start. My mind starts to interpret, and I start to think that immediately I'm reading this. I'm reading this as a formerly enslaved person or as an enslaved person. I'm starting to say something about the nature of liberty and freedom. Yeah. Um, and that the the suppression, the 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 theft of liberty or freedom is the ultimate crime. It's worthy yeah. of, it's worthy of the ultimate, it's worthy of the ultimate. So that since, since if I, if I'm a, if, if I'm a good reader of Exodus and Leviticus, which, you know, very few, even devout Christians are, um, yeah. they'll, they'll see the entire point of the eye for eye, tooth over tooth is that all punishments are proportionate. Yeah. If I ap- apply that hermeneutic to that, te- to this verse, a proportionate punishment for the theft of liberty is death. So yeah. that says something about liberty and freedom to me. Yeah. And and to that point, just with the proportional uh, argument, some folks, you know, before VC, um, and this goes back to like, you know, uh, um, some white Quakers in, uh, in Philadelphia in the, um, in the 1600s, uh, noticed that there are other um, offenses uh, in the uh, Hebrew Bible that are not requiring the death penalty. So they point out, for instance, that uh, like, the you know when uh, when David uh, sleeps with Bathsheba, a case of adultery, that's not a death penalty offense. Right. Um, so you know the argument was made even before VC 
that, you know, uh, this shows just how heinous um, enslavement was. George, George uh, Keith, my, one of my favorite, yes, yes, my, George Keith, my yeah, favorite yes. troublemakers in early in colonial America. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. George later, Keith. later, an Anglican missionary, but we won't get into that. Go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, so yeah, so George Keith specifically, he compared it to um, to uh, what what David did, and uh, mentioned that you know uh, that you know the punishment was just uh, a fourfold restoration, yep. uh, not. Yep. In fact, uh, the death penalty. Not so you know, the penalty. argument was was already there that you know, um, enslavement of all the things that tick got off, so to speak, enslavement was pretty high up on the list because it required the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, and, and yeah, so Vicia read that as a fairly straightforward mandate. Uh, other folks uh, before VC had uh, had used that uh, text rhetorically to show how you know, again, how uh, what God thought of slavery, but VC saw that as a mandate to be put into practice. Right. So this is like this is not a matter of theology. I mean, you, uh, you uh, quote cite Jonathan Edwards Jr., who yeah. makes his anti-slavery move comes through preaching on that text. Yes. But he's making a theological point to people who, by this time in Connecticut and Mass, they don't own slaves anymore. Um, yeah. Yeah. But exactly. this is but. But for VC, this is something you use, not just you that you just interpret it. You use this. You act. Yeah, you act exactly. through these. You these words are, as it were, a mode for action. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, he's he's not just constructing like a theological treatise against slavery. You right. know, he's saying, okay, what does the Bible require us to do? Yeah. Uh, you know, in real time, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and it, does this come up a lot that he uses this text? This is, is this is this sort of his essential proof text? Um, I think so, and it comes up in the trial transcripts quite a bit. Um, and you know, and as we get closer to the Civil War, you know, especially in the eighteen fifties, you know, as uh, as abolition, you know, and even in the eighteen thirties, eighteen forties, as abolition is ramping up, uh, this this particular text becomes used over and over and over and over again. Um, so, for instance. Um, in 1860, a, uh, an abolitionist named uh, John Coffin sort of wrote a history of slave revolt. And uh, the, the text that he uses as the uh, epigraph for his, uh, for his uh, pamphlet is Exodus 21-16. Uh, so yeah. VC wasn't always credited or cited, but this text sort of became one of the major proof texts. So what's the immediate pushback in the trial from I mean, we should probably say something about before we m- move on uh, how the trial works. This magistrate uh, Lionel Kennedy, yes. Um, and since it, it, as I we said, su- I suggested earlier, you agreed it's it, it's almost a, there's a, almost an ecclesiastical court aspect to this. Yes. How does how does Kennedy and how do others push back on the interpretation of Exodus twenty one sixteen? Because there has to be to have a a, a to have a, a a different interpretation is an absolute necessity as we're just not just intellectually, but in terms of action and of diffusing action. Yes. So their strategy, um, you know, uh, in terms of the court, you know, the court magistrates, and then also um, clergy in Charleston, the immediate aftermath of, of the events, um, their strategy was not to engage VC's particular interpretations. So they, you know, they didn't necessarily offer a rebuttal for Exodus 2116. Uh, what they did instead was you know, the, the magistrate at the trial, when he's sentencing Vincent to death, it says, you, know, you got it wrong. You're, you know, 
your interpretation of scripture is wrong. Um, and in fact, he then quotes several of the standard pro-slavery proof texts uh, mm-hmm. from the uh, epistles, from the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, uh, um, Ephesians 6.15, uh, Ephesians 6.5, excuse me, um, yeah. and several others. That, you know, so, so slaves obey your masters, those kind of texts. Read well, from the King so That's very um, interesting. So rather than engage on the ground of the Old Testament. Yes. Um, he yeah. uh, he decide he spreads the interpretive gaze. He spreads the interpretive gaze. Um, yes, which is or which transfers is, it maybe which or transfers great. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it, it's interesting. He doesn't say we should. It, but as I read you, he's not saying we have to condition our understanding of uh, Exodus twenty one through sixteen with these things. He's just saying forget about let's put just forget about that and let's look at this, which is not that's not theologizing necessarily Aquinas says, you know, if you have difficulties, keep reading um, and, yeah. and, and reconcile, but um, that's not how what he does. Instead, it's, it's much, it's less of a theological move. It's more of a, it's a power move. Yeah. 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 Definitely a power move. Yeah. So, you know, um, and that, that seems to be sort of the move that's made, you know, not only by the magistrate, but also uh, um, within months uh, of the trial, Within several local clergy, they would they would publish their sermons and pamphlets, and often sort of just an overwhelming sort of just here's a huge dense network of biblical texts to support my uh, point. Just sort of you know, just you know just flooding uh, that you know, this, this this power move and not responding to Vissi's particular um, interpretive moves or exegetical arguments. Well, I want to I want to look at Ephesians six five because there has okay. to be that has to be in just a second that has to be the most quoted. Um, passage in sermons to slaves uh, yes yes and slaves heard that one all the time but before we get that i was i just did know on page 33 you talk about the much lesser known uh joshua 621 which i think is just uh that's an amazing insight into vessies and the other uh would-be rebels into their 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 into their imagination Yes, and so so Exodus six twenty uh, six twenty one, um, you know th- th- that is a very you know what he does there is rather brilliant, uh, VC, um, and the way yeah. he the way he interprets it, you know, and it, there's a whole complex you know thing in the background, but basically Exodus six twenty one is a story of Joshua in the Battle of Jericho, uh, one of the more uh, you know famous stories from uh, from the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, uh, and in Exodus six twenty one there's a command to kill everything that breathes. Uh, so once they conquer Jericho, kill everything that breathes, uh, you know, men, women, children, cattle, everything. Um, and, you know, Vesey took that as, you know, as marching orders again. Uh, and what he did rather brilliantly is two things. Uh, what, the, what he did sort of rhetorically there is uh, first, he positioned the white Charlestonians as the Canaanites. Yeah. Uh, there was a tendency, won't get into all the details, but there was a tendency uh, to, for, um, for folks, white folks, to talk about um, North America and, you know, and the indigenous population as the Canaanites. Uh, and so when they came in, they were, they, were, they were the Israelites, they were Joshua, they were conquering uh, the you know, North America just as Joshua did, you know, and, the, uh, and the native population was the Canaanites. Vinci sort of flips the script there. And suddenly... The white Charstonians are the Canaanites, and he is the Israelites. Um, 
So that's one particular move that he makes. A second move that he makes is he notes several texts, uh, Joshua 6.21, also a text from, uh, from Zechariah as well, and also a text from Isaiah, um, which talk about particular cities, uh, Jericho, Jerusalem, and some other cities, as uh, coming, under divine cap- coming under divine condemnation. Uh, and what he does then is says, okay, well, Charleston fits that biblical pattern of a city that... Uh, because of their heinous behavior, has come under divine condemnation. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so, so he then positions Charlton as like a biblical city that God has condemned, mm-hmm. uh, and following what he sees as a pattern of not just Joshua six twenty one, but also several other texts. So these are two moves of seeing Charleston as fitting in to sort of this typological pattern, and then also by positioning the white population. As rather than the indigenous population, as the Canaanites, mm-hmm. um, is uh, you know is something that that uh, that he did with that particular story of Joshua about Jericho. And for any white Southern who also reads their Bible, it's pretty terrifying if you know what Absolutely. Jericho is. What what happens Jer- and what Jericho kind of represents all the way through the rest of the Old Testament is the anti-Israel. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. It, it is the great force uh, yeah. of evil in the world. Yeah, and in fact, you get um, so in 1823 there is this. Um, pamphlet that's published by a, a local Episcopal um, pro-slavery priest uh, who is very concerned about that. Again, he doesn't mention VC by name, but it's pretty, it's pretty uh, clear who he's talking about. And he, go, he makes a very, very, very strained argument to show that the, the Canaanites were not actually white, but in fact, the Canaanites, when Joshua came, they fled the scene and, and went down to Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and so he makes a very strange argument uh, to, to make the case because he's aware of the implications of what Vissi was saying yeah. uh, in terms of the, the racialization of the Canaanites as white uh, rather than black. Yeah, that's that, that's a great. We're not going to have a chance to get to that chapter, but pe- those people should read the book and read that that chapter on the on that whole line of argument. But let's talk about Ephesians 6, 5, since I've got yeah. uh, a, you know, religions, a, story, a student of religion, scholar of religion. Um what I'm very curious. What have been? Do you have any? Have you looked into like what was the interpretation of like Ephesians six five back in previous eras of slavery? Like call it the Roman Empire. Um, how had that? How had that been interpreted? What was the? Was there any sort of chain of interpretation leading into nineteenth um, century America? Yeah, not 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 at least relative to Charleston in, in this particular context, uh, and not so much. I mean, you're absolutely right. So you know, uh, um, especially um, you know, contemporary New Testament scholars who have you know studied slavery quite a bit, uh, and you know, and compared it to um, to uh, Greco-Roman era, have have tried to sort of contextualize. Okay, what exactly is slavery in the Greco-Roman context in which Ephesians uh, would have been written? You know, and what you know, what so for instance. What did uh, Saint Paul uh, mm-hmm. understand as uh, as um, as slavery? Um, the the closest you get um, to uh, to sort of a chain uh, going back to uh, the Greco Roman era with, with uh, in terms of how people in Charleston applied it was the uh, one of the standard arguments you see this in Thomas Jefferson's writing as well. Uh, one of the standard arguments that Lionel Kennedy make was that was that slavery 
as practiced in Charleston is the mildest, you know, uh, you know, what most wonderful form of slavery that's ever existed, you mm-hmm. know, uh, since the time of the flood, you know, so, you know, so Rome would have practiced a much more hideous form of slavery, you know, mm-hmm. so they, they wanted to sort of promote this fiction that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that slavery in Charleston was, you know, was a very comfortable uh, institution, unlike how it was practiced, you know, in, in, in previous times. I, I got to say, I mean, if you read, I wouldn't, if you got to read Cato the Elder on his yeah. instructions on how to deal with your slaves, it doesn't seem great. I'm not saying no. that that it's, uh, I wouldn't call it super, worse or superior, though. It, it's it, They're both bad in their own unique ways. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a great disclaimer to make. Yeah, no one's saying like, you know, slavery in the ancient world was, was ideal. I have, um, I, I, was, I've had, I've had like a generation of undergraduates at various points trying to say like, which is better? You know, let's have a gradation. Yeah, let's yeah. have a hierarchy of slavery. No, no, no. Really, if you were sold into slavery in like Athens, it really sucked. I mean, it's pretty clear. Um, yeah, you wouldn't yeah. want to have either happen to you. It's just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think it, if it's not racial chattel slavery, it doesn't mean that it's not also bad. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think those comparisons, um, I think, are very you know, just take us down a, you know, a path we don't want to go down. Absolutely, it, it's a it's a very long path to a dead end. Yes, yes, yes. So they, so there, so some have used Ephesians. They're, 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 okay, so they've used Ephesians six five. Does does Vesey address Ephesians six five? Do we have any sense that he's like arguing with it? Yeah, he wasn't so concerned. Uh, that's a great question. He wasn't so concerned with how pro-slavery folks read the Bible uh-huh. uh, or the arguments that they made. Uh, you know, he was just argue, You know, he was just concerned with you know, um, showing up an argument for uh, for liberation. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, uh, you know, be it violent or otherwise. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, he wasn't. You know, he didn't really address you know uh, how other how other people. Uh, um, um, use scripture to post slavery stance. Um, so, for instance, like you, going back to this idea of like you know, before VC and certainly after VC, uh, there were certainly uh, certain anti-slavery people who you know, doing sort of a more theological treaties approach, would try to uh, rebut or refute uh, pro-slavery readings. You know, Vesey seemed not to have neither the time nor inclination uh, mm-hmm. to uh, to do that. You know, he wasn't. Uh, concerned with uh, how enslavers read read the Bible. Um, we should also mention, by the way, just, just, just I, I, realize we, I haven't done this yet, but in terms of what Ecclesiastes, uh, Ecclesiastes Ephesians uh, 6.5 says, yeah. again, this is reading out of the King James Version. Yes. Uh, Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and singleness of your heart as unto Christ. So again, so Lionel Kennedy would read that as a straightforward you know, uh, endorsement of slavery. Uh-huh. Servants be obedient. Uh, be obedient to your uh, to your masters. What do they uh, do with the fact that at least the King the King James translators translate as servant? I mean, this yeah, is, yeah, yeah. This yeah, is yeah. of course the ambiguity of the way Southerners in the antebellum period, or even and long afterward, for that matter, would refer to the enslaved as servants. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's a great point. You know, sort of the. Um, you know, and especially long after, you know, they, they weren't enslaved, they were servants, you know. Again, but, but, so, but in a way, this is a, a sort of gift, well, gift. This is a sort of, this is a, this is especially, this is a trope that's put in by people that read the King James Bible every day 
and yeah, and, yeah, and read the yeah. whole thing so that servant slave s- slave servant but what do what do what what is meant by servants do we i'm sorry yeah, to so, take the, take this off the the track yeah. a little bit but does he yeah, automatically I mean, mean slaves well, it depends. I mean, I would probably translate it slaves. Yeah. Uh, you know, going back to sort of Greek without getting into all the weeds here. Servus um, aum, Latin. But yeah, yeah. But then, no, what, uh, but what, uh, but then what slaves, what the English word slaves means uh, might trigger different things for different people. Right. Uh, you know, in terms of like, okay, does that, um, does that uh, mean, uh, you know, uh, chattel slavery, for instance? Yeah. Right. Does that mean different forms of slavery? Um um, and so on and so forth. So yeah, uh, the slavery has changed and adapted throughout human history, and and certainly the racial chattel slavery of Charles in eighteen twenty two was not what Paul was writing about whenever he wrote to the church at Ephesus. Yes, yes, absolutely. And and again, the pro slavery folks in in Charleston wanted to believe that you know their their form of slavery, the form of slavery that they practiced, you know, racial chattel slavery, was you know the mildest, most humane version of slavery that the world has ever seen. Um, again, you know, a complete fiction, but, you know, that's sort of what they, uh, they wanted to uh, promote. Well, yeah, it's, it, it makes you, t- at least you're cl- clutching at straws here. It's, it's at least uh, they were exalting in the fact that it was the cruelest uh, form of slavery that uh, at least they had some kind of conscience left that they still had to say that. By 1855, yes. there are lots of people that didn't really care that much about that. Um, yes, yes, absolutely. Um, but let's. And speaking of mildest and all the rest of that, let's let's finish off by talking about Leviticus 25, uh, 44 through 46, and also Richard Furman. Um, yes. Can you read Leviticus that that section from Leviticus first, and okay, uh, yeah, and then we'll yeah. we'll finish up by like seeing how that's used by people as they're changing their rhetoric about slavery. Yes. So, um, and again, so uh, uh, Richard Furman wasn't the first to, you know, uh, to quote this text, but this is from Leviticus uh, 25 uh, verses 44 through 46. It's a little longer of a text, uh, but it, it says, again, King James Version, both thy bondsmen and bondsmaids, which thou shalt have, shall be of the heathen, that are around about you. Of them shall ye bondsmen and bondsmaids, uh, shall you buy bondsmen and bondsmaids. Moreover, the children of the strangers that do sojourn among you, of them ye shall buy. And of their families that are with you, which they beget in your land, and they shall be your possession. And ye shall take them as an inheritance for your children after you, to inherit them for a possession. They shall be your bondsmen forever. Um, well, that, is so not that, quickly, a, that, that is not a text that Denmark Vesey ever used for anything. Absolutely not. Yeah, 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 absolutely not. Uh, you know, yeah, that, you know, that, that text, no. And by the way, to contextualize that, that text within the larger chapter of Leviticus 25, uh, before, right before that text, you know, it talks about how you should not Speaking to Israelites, uh, you should not enslave your fellow Israelites. Right. Uh, however, um, folks from other nations are Fair uh, game. are game for for enslavement and also permanent enslavement. 
uh, you know, if you enslave your fellow Israelites, you're supposed to let them go after seven years. Uh, but the text I just read, you know, the the nations around you or those those from those nations who are living among you, uh, you know, you can enslave them and permanently, and also their children uh, will become your possession. Uh, at least according to King James. Mm-hmm. Um, so that you know, so that that you can imagine that ver- those particular verses, especially in isolation were very attractive to pro-slavery uh, interpreters. So we should explain who Richard Furman is, since he is in the history of Southern Protestantism. Uh, I mean, not just Baptists, but among all Southern Protestants. He's a very important figure at Furman University, named after him. Uh, and yeah, he, and part of it, because he lives forever um, and and is influential for like multiple generations. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so um, so by the time of a VC's revolt, he's you know, he's he's already in sort of an, an elder statesman, an elder clergyman, you know, with massive influence. Uh, in fact, he's sort of um, you know, he's he's in conversation with the governors, and you know, it, it has the governor's ears, uh, for instance. Uh, and, and as you mentioned, like you know, the name his name is still uh, on Furman University in South Carolina. Uh, you know, so it's it's hard, as you said, to underestimate his influence. Um, in terms of you know uh, 19th century um, um, ecclesial history, not just mm-hmm. uh, as you said, not just in terms of Baptists, but also just sort of the South in general. Um, and one of the one of the arguments that he makes, uh, as as we had mentioned earlier, that there were some folks who held that enslavement was. They acknowledge slavery was wrong, you know, sort of like a Jeffersonian position in a way. Uh, acknowledge slavery was wrong, but it was a necessary evil. Uh, it was something that they, as slaveholders, had inherited. They didn't start this institution; they inherited this institution. So, you know, uh, what they can do is, you know, um, at least make it as humane as possible. Mm-hmm. At least that's the that's the fiction they told themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, what Furman does is Furman, you know, argues that no, it's actually a good. Mm-hmm. Um, and he makes a case for a very paternalistic um, understanding of slavery. Uh, and part of the way he does that is he looks at texts like Leviticus 25 and also some other texts uh, which list enslaved people, both men and women, as members of the extended family. So, for instance, uh, and this is occurs several at several different texts in the Hebrew Bible. So, for instance, uh, in one version of the Ten Commandments, uh, when it's the commandment to, uh, to uh, follow the Sabbath, uh, it says, no, not only should you rest, but also your, uh, your, your wives, your, your children, uh, and also um, the male and female slave people, uh, and also your cattle. Uh, so, Furman noticed that Enslaved people are listed as sort of family members uh, in several texts in the Hebrew Bible. And if they were listed as family members, then um, then what that meant is they weren't necessarily understood as men. So you could imagine someone hypothetically coming to Furman and saying, hey, you know what? Uh, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, our founding documents, you know, all men are created equal. Uh, Furman would say, that's true. However, the enslaved people are members of the family. They're dependents. 
we wouldn't, you know, uh, consider children or at his time women as as men in that sense. So therefore, enslaved people don't have those those same rights. Uh-huh. Uh, so a very sort of paternalistic uh-huh. notion of slavery, one that then justified uh, slavery as a good because you're you're taking care of the enslaved. Now, I one thing to it, it, has Furman changed his views on slavery over the course of his long life. That's a great question. Yeah, that that, that is a great question. They do, you know, did he did he start out with a sort uh, of necessary a, evil? He's a he's a of, Baptist. I mean, so I would I would imagine that he was on even on more on the Jeffersonian side of the necessary evil question, but I, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, that's that, that's a great question. I'm not sure myself. Yeah, um, but what is truly chilling though is that Furman's argument, as heinous and awful as it now seems to us, is actually a meliorist position, as you make clear. He's yeah. push he's pushing back at people saying, you know, enough of this treatment of blacks as if they're human beings. This is wrong. We gotta this is what this paternalism leads to slave revolts. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, and that was a criticism. Some people said, you know, you're you're being too mild. And you know, and if you give you know if you give an inch, they'll take a mile. Uh you know, is sort of the the idea. It's the um, Simon Legree philosophy of of of, of slaveholding, I guess is yes. what Harriet Beecher Stowe would say. But yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, a few decades later, you know, yeah. um, but, you know, but also what, what Furman, what Furman believed was that, um, that everyone enslaved or free uh, should have the means to salvation, not necessarily in this life, but in the hereafter. Um, so he, he thought it was imperative uh, following the, uh, the command and acts uh, to you know, uh, spread spread the spread the gospel uh, that even the enslaved have a chance at salvation, and so therefore they should be educated in you know the what he considered the proper uh, understanding of of Christianity. So I like uh, to I like to conclude with this. There seems to me there's a uh, here I am about to use I don't even like to use the word dialectic on the podcast, but let's say there's a dialectic being set up, um, which is easy to over. I think a lot of white Northerners who don't know much about this overlook this, but there's always a dialogue dialectic going on between enslaved people and enslavers Mm. um, over the Bible and what it means. Sometimes this is hard to see. Yeah. The benefit benefit of the trial records of the Vesey's conspirators is that we can see it. We can see what's yeah, going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, you know, and I mean, they're, they're, and dialogue in the sense that you know they're often talking past each other. You know, uh, uh, of course. You know, I've but, been in lots you, of faculty meetings like that. Yeah, yeah, I can't think of one that hasn't been like that. Uh, <laughs> but you know, you know, um, absolutely. Um, but yeah, you, you can see how how different. Um, you know how, how you know the different you know uh, points of emphasis. Uh, from biblical texts that they that they uh, use. In fact, no, it's not so much that they're reading the Bible; uh, they're reading biblical texts. Yeah, uh, you know, meaning like no, it's not. It's not. They're, they're, neither of them are sort of going for a all encompassing. Oh, they, they they might say they are, but they aren't mm-hmm. uh, going for sort of an all encompassing, um, comprehensive uh, position on enslavement 
that covers the entire uh, covers the entire Bible, but rather they're, they're highlighting particular biblical texts to fit into a sort of their understanding of uh, of uh, enslavement or their resistance to enslavement. And yet, uh, for certain enslavers, the more they do that, the more they put irresistible yeah. irresistible force upon their own conceptions of of whiteness, blackness, and of enslavement. So I'm thinking yeah. of like James Henley Thornwell, who goes off to Europe and comes back deciding that he's going to change his whole position on slavery, but it's 1861. Um, yeah. The ship has sailed, but you can see that this has been part of a long, arduous spiritual struggle with the discontinuities of his thought. And, and yeah. drawing of you know and and but you see that in Furman, yeah, already. yeah, 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 absolutely. And, and I will say, you know, um, one thing I've I've wondered about too is um, whether, and just this, this goes to the subtitle of the book a little bit, you know, the thwarted revolt that puts slavery and scripture on trial. Mm-hmm. If you know, uh, if before VC, if uh, several of the um, the pro-slavery actors in the in the, in the story uh, would have just taken it as self-evident that uh, the Bible supported slavery and endorsed slavery, uh, and so that you have VC maybe in their mind coming out of left field mm-hmm. uh, and you know saying no, there's a way to read the Bible that challenges not only slavery but also your life as its slavers. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, in a way, the trial not only was a trial of an enslaved uh, group of people, but also and and Vissi, uh, he was a, he was a freedman. So yeah, so I have a also, bunch of books here on Southern slavery, and even a lot of them emphasize that it's it's Furman and Thornwell are speaking against Northern white abolitionists, but yeah. they're not. Yeah, they're yeah, talk, yeah, they're, yeah, They don't. I mean, what is a northern white abolitionist to them compared to the free black man who was prosperous and who nonetheless quoted the Bible against them? That's everything. That's their yeah. world. Yeah. Not and, and, not what not Harriet Tubman or uh, I mean not Harriet not Harriet Beecher Stowe. Yeah. Harriet Tubman, yes. Harriet Beecher yeah. Stowe, not so much. Not so Denmark Vesey, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Garrison, Wendell Phillips, okay, you know, far yeah. away gadflies. Yeah, and 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 to your point, uh, you know, um, unlike you know, uh, unlike the, all the names you just mentioned, with the exception of uh, Harry Tubman, all the all the names you just mentioned, um, the uh, um, VC not only challenged slavery but also threatened their lives. Yes, uh, you know, said you know, there's a way to read the Bible which you should be executed. You yeah. know, uh, so the, you know, it, it was an existential crisis to to the extreme in that in that regard, you know, yeah. which you know you wouldn't get from you know the northerners, you know, who were sort of treated as a theological you know, treatise on you know why slavery was wrong. Well, let's finish up with a so what question. Okay. Um, you know, I don't know how many uh, neo Marxist materialists listen to this uh, podcast, <laughs> but um, you know, there's going to be someone saying, Ugh, if they even got this far." They probably they already stopped listening, but they were thinking something along the lines of yeah 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 yeah. Um, but what can be measured is all that there is. Uh, you are just like pond bugs skate, scooting around on the surface, and what 
is really important is all the the logs and the stones and the and the mud beneath the surface that are shaping all the dialectic. They're shaping the yeah. you know this what is this interpretation of scripture nonsense? So I'm sure you've gotten that in the past. Um, what do you say to them? Yeah. So. Um... Yeah, and I, I I agree with you. I'm not sure how many um um you know Dale <laughs> Carrillo still listens to podcasts at this point. But, they've they've um, long ago signed off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. Well, I mean, so the, the issue uh, I'll put it this way: sort of like the issue of like why should we take this seriously? Um. Part of my part of my thinking is like, you know, why take these particular um these particular uh, interpretations seriously? Um. And part of it is like you know um we'll probably think to ourselves though, uh, how we take the event to which these scriptures are being applied, these interpretations of scripture are being applied seriously. Um, and, you know, if we are to understand, if we are to take seriously um, the, um, the relevance of slavery for, um, for the American experiment, um, then yes, we should take these, take these, uh, interpretations uh, seriously you know a, a serious biblical interpretation you know is i would say it's, it's measured by how seriously you think of the events or the application of those uh, of those interpretations so yeah i i uh, i would take it as a given that we can't uh, underestimate the seriousness of of uh, slavery in telling an american story if that makes sense that, that works for me my guest today has been Jeremy Shipper. He is the author of Denmark Vissi's Bible, The Thwarted Revolt That Put Slavery and Scripture on Trial. Jeremy Shipper, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you for having me. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook.